This season of Good is sponsored by Musicbed. Musicbed represents over 700 indie artists and composers with record label quality music for you to license. Also, check out musicbed.com for more information on their subscription service, giving you unlimited access for all your projects. As a good listener, you can get one month free off any subscription type. Just head to musicbed.com good and use coupon code good at checkout. This season of Good is also sponsored by Film Supply. Licensed stock footage from world-class filmmakers. Plus, if you're short on time, they have free footage research available to help you find exactly what you need. Learn more at filmsupply.com. Um, I just got vaccinated. Literally just oh, came from it. So... <laughs> Yeah, so you're going to be feeling sick throughout the podcast. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, if you if you note my slow decline, that's that's the reason. Um, <laughs> you guys, I'm feeling feverish. I can't do. This. I don't know what's yeah. going on. With that. Yeah, everybody. <laughs> no, I had COVID really bad in November, like bad, uh, like uh, in the hospital, bad. And um, are you serious? Yeah, it was rough, and so I couldn't. I, I like looking back at it now. It's like I'm. You know, you would think someone could just come on and like do that because Christian and I do this, you know, uh, pretty often like interviews. And I was just to the point where, dude, I couldn't even get out of bed and like speak. It just like wasn't possible. So I had to like dip out of several of these interviews, but, um, I won't do that today. So don't <laughs> worry. Don't worry. Yeah. It is no joke. I, uh, I got the Moderna shot, uh, three weeks ago and it gave me fevers for like three nights in a row really? uh, and my brother and sister wow. caught covid in march and then october of last year yeah. and they were just decimated by it they didn't have to go to the hospital but they were very close um and so there's just something to our blood type i'm sure yeah, where yeah, it's like yeah. oh this is not this is not a good cocktail to to put into the bloodstream but you didn't um, you didn't get yeah, it though I feel very lucky i don't think so not to my knowledge yeah yeah. What, yeah, me what, and my wife got it at the same time and both went to the hospital. It was awful. Yeah. Oh my god, I'm so sorry, dude. Yeah, all good. So it was I mean, I actually kind of expected it to be like a little bit more emotional today, but uh it, it yeah, it was kind of emotional to like say goodbye to all of that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Just let it go. Getting the shot in the arm. I got I got the the first shot of Moderna and was leaving the CVS or sorry, the Rite Aid and then broke down crying in the aisle wow. and then unexpectedly and then kind of got outside and it felt like a weird end of the nightmare. It was weird because I was like, yeah, totally. I know that this is not, I shouldn't be feeling emotional about this. And then I was, I don't know, I was just surrounded by all of these like vitamins and things. And I was like, science is so big and wonderful and so <laughs> underappreciated. True, man. For whatever reason, it hit me in the middle of that Rite Aid. Anyway. I love it. Does anybody know how it's going to work with the passports? And and do you guys have any sense, or Jim, have you got any sense of like uh, movie sets like needing sort of vaccination passports? Has anybody heard anything about that? I'm sure. I know that already people at customs in different countries require it. And um, if you go to an office depot, they will laminate your finalized uh, vaccine card. And so I've seen people doing that and just carrying yeah. it around with them. Um, but no, I, I don't know what the regulations are going to be like on a film set now. Jim, you know what? I, I, I had totally forgotten about this until we were um, talking about it now. But I had read your um, – you wrote like an article on Medium about kind of like yeah. film sets. Hollywood uh, versus the virus. Yeah. And I was like so fucking bummed when I, <laughs> when I well, read I haven't, that. I haven't read it. What, what, what is it about? What is it? Um, Basically it like about? the reality of like how, how COVID is going to affect um, making movies. 
And I kind of don't remember all yeah. the details you went into, but how do you feel like your kind of take on it has panned out? Yeah, I wrote it in, I wrote it in mid March and then published it at the end of March of 2020. It's called Hollywood versus the virus. And it was just because I, it was the product of having a thousand conversations with people on zoom and phone calls being like, Oh yeah, this is going to be done by July. And well, you know, productions right. will come back and all of the news that I was seeing was saying that that wasn't going to be the case. And I know that Hollywood has this tendency of bullshitting and keeping the the house afloat uh at all costs yeah. of like lying and misleading people in order to make sure that job security is you know a full form and yeah, yeah, and I just yeah. thought okay well this isn't helping the people who are on my sets like my production designers yeah. my mm -hmm. you know anybody on on set these lies are not going to be helping people I understand the point of these people doing it to to make money and in packaging and stuff like that but I need to tell people people because this bullshit is dangerous and it's not going to help people get what were some of the things that the they were what, that months. they were saying at first if you remember uh a, a lot of it was just um just wish thinking it was like oh you know if we can sell this thing now we can be in production in august and right, um right. you know netflix is still buying things and um you know we could shoot something in a pod or we could shoot something with a 70 person crew and I that just was so against what the CDC was saying and what my intuitions were. And so I wrote this thing and um, and it kind of had that effect. Everybody became very depressed. But I knew two people on my crew who went and started their own Etsy store and are now thriving. Wow, and it's like, cool, yeah. during this downtime, they have ancillary income. Um, and they were like, oh, thank you for writing that thing. I, I hadn't fully let the bomb hit yet. Yeah. And seeing somebody post about it, uh, that was the thing that I needed. I, I think it's interesting. I'm sure reading that and kind of the collective effect of everyone realizing kind of in the film production world that like things were really not going to be the same. Uh, I, I, I look back at 2020 now and I'm like, you know, obviously I, I feel like very lucky and not everybody has had this, uh, this happen, but then in some ways, like it leveled the playing field of being like, yo, I need to make money, you know? <laughs> and like, it's not about like, the idea of like being on a commercial set and making like, you know, this kind of work, it was like the, the playing field got leveled of like, you know, I'll edit like whatever, you know, like I need to like stay afloat. And I think in some ways it, it gave people, including me kind of permission to be like, you know, put like a white flag up of like, I'll do whatever it takes to kind of like stay afloat. And I think that um, for me, at least it was like a nice, like shedding of ego to be like, I just, I just have to like make money and, and survive. And um, in a lot of ways, I think it was really helpful for me. Did you feel that way at all, Jim or Christian? Either of you? I, I'm very lucky. I didn't um, shoot anything in 2020. I had shot a feature in November and December of 2019 yeah. and then had 14 months to edit. And sound we should say that we, that stuff. we just like, had I, uh, Natalie Kingston on last uh, week. Uh, she's a good oh, friend great. of mine. I, she's, I live she's here great. in New Orleans, so we've worked together a, a number of times. But we had her on last week, and we talked about the movie a little bit. But uh, uh, yeah, Brian and she came out to do the Wolf of Snow Hollow, but then we shot this other movie yeah, called yeah. The Beta Test in November, and December of last year. Okay, cool. Wow. Wait, did Natalie shoot Beta and Test? Actually, as well? we traded places. So she, 
No, no, no. Uh, Kenneth, uh, Kenneth Whale shot beta test, but but I guess we dosy doed because she moved to my neighborhood in Los Angeles. <laughs> so although we we grew up kind of next to each other in New Orleans, she's now my neighbor in in That's Los funny. Angeles. Kind of funny. Where did you grow up here in New Orleans? I grew up in Old Metairie, about Old Metairie. like six blocks from Country Day. Wow. Maybe take a take us back to sort of maybe when you first started making movies here. Like, what was New Orleans kind of like? Like, were you making movies here, and and what was the landscape of the things at that point? So I graduated from high school in two thousand and five, and at that point had only done short films on mini DV with my buddies, and there wasn't really a film infrastructure yet. The tax credits hadn't like been passed, and I, I knew that there was stuff that was coming. And then Katrina happened. And then I think the first real production that came down was Benjamin Button. Mm. And then I, during the summer, got to like intern our production assist on on that set and got to see how David Fincher worked and then got to like work directly under Sion Schaffen, his producer. And they have just been pen pals and so supportive over the last you know, 12 years or whatever it's been since that movie was shot. Um and so that was kind of the only real film world stuff that kind of got me addicted to being on set and, and making <laughs> stuff. Um, but but really, there was no film community for, for everything that I I tried. I mean, I was like running the film club at school <laughs> and then like going to the blockbuster and renting Criterion Collection movies. But apart from that, there was no film world. Um you know, I wish I had known Natalie before bullying her to come and shoot the werewolf movie. Um, uh, but uh, but really, yeah, that was it. There was like the New Orleans Film Festival and the Film Society and they would do screenings sometimes. Um, but then they really started to come into their own and take off, you know, by 2007, kind of like post Katrina. And um, and then, yeah, I went to Emerson in Boston and made friends there. And again, that was just like weekend warriors shooting yeah. stuff and um, still trying to make, you know, our homework deadlines. But um, and I met more people in the film community there, like Tony Ascenda, who made American Vandal, was in my graduating mm. class. The Daniels, who made Swiss Army yeah. Man, <laughs> were in our class. Uh, Danny Madden, who made Beast Beast. Uh, just like they became this weird collective of us, like moving to L.A. and making things. And we're all independently doing stuff now. It's really crazy. Like the the best thing that ever happened to me in film was having very talented people in my class that I could say, oh, I can't let this person win the college film festival. I've got to. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that's kind of like a thing. Um, <laughs> Christian can uh, attest to this, but like, you know, we even had a guest on here once that kind of made fun of me for going to film school just to like make friends. <laughs> and I was like, uh, which, you know, is kind of offensive. That's the best but, part of film school. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that like, it's hard to really, uh, yeah, put like a monetary value on like coming out as like an 18 year old and, or, you know, 20 year old and having like a network, you know? Um, but that's, I, I mean, I'm still, I'm still doing, I'm still like in touch with people that I went to school with, you know, and that network has uh, driven a lot of what I've been able to do. Well, Jim, going through the film school program at Emerson, I don't know how traditional versus non-traditional it is as a program, but you seem to have found like a really non-traditional way through movies. So I, I'm kind of curious how you found that, especially going through film school. Um, yeah. Is that something that they were teaching you to to think about things in different ways? No. 
No, we were still shooting on <laughs> the Rolexes in 2009. Yeah. yeah, so like we had no real digital cameras. This is after the 5D Mark II. 5D Mark II came out in 2006 and shot 24p with sync sound. Um, Jim, are you 33? So like at that point, I'm 34. Okay, because we we our uh, school years are exactly the same. I graduated high school That's in 2005. Okay, wow. So oh, same, same era. Same um, era. So, yeah. So yeah. So Emerson didn't really teach much more than theory and then the production stuff that they did teach was still based in film and so the the only way that i've been able to succeed i i actually was very lucky i i was good on the phone and i became a producer for friends of mine at emerson danny madden who had like a viral short film called notes on biology got a million views on vimeo and i was like oh i can just oh, yeah. like be a producer for this guy and i did that for four or five years and just created the startup with him for animation um, and then I, I met, a, a dude named Lil Dicky or Dave bird, and he was doing music <laughs> videos with my buddy, Tony. And I was like, oh, I can produce music videos. I can do that. And so I produced a music video called Lemmy freak and classic male pregame and save that money. And just being around <laughs> Dave as like a, as like a YouTuber, um, and like a businessman himself or this ambitious young kid, he became such an influence on me that film school didn't really teach of you can invest yeah. in these short films. There were music videos, have your own channel um, and then put them online and then watch them blow up. And then every time somebody watches the video, the first line of the description is where they can buy the song on iTunes. And it was like, mm. anytime he was releasing music videos, especially now for Freaky Friday, he would become a millionaire every time he released something. And it's like, Jesus that Christ. was so crazy to me that you could do that just by using the internet. And so yeah. I was very lucky. I like got to work directly and watch this person who is a maniac for how for his work ethic of just like, you know, he's organized his life around his biology and how, what he needs to record and do his music. It's really something to admire. And um, and being close with him and Tony Ascenda, the director, um, it got me thinking that you could make something. And then Trey Schultz as well. I met Trey Schultz. Um, at the New Orleans Film Festival and then he was doing Cretia and then seeing Cretia on the big screen I was like oh you can make movies mm. you can make feature films like this in your backyard with your friends and that was yeah. that was something that was so inspiring I'd heard about Cassavetes and the Duplasses for 10 years being in film school but seeing trade do it in a bathrobe and flip flops I was like oh yeah no <laughs> if he can do it I could fucking do this thing for sure um, That's so funny. I don't know. I think like all of that in tandem with the digital revolution of digital cameras becoming more accessible and audiences being more accessible through um, these platforms. I was like, someday somebody's going to do this stuff for feature films. And then I kept on hoping that it was these friends of mine that I was producing for and it never was. And I was like, OK, I guess I've, I guess I've, I have to be that person. Mm. Wow. I mean, did you, uh, by the way, Dave is so good, right? Like the, the TV show yeah. that he's putting so out. So, it's so, yeah. <laughs> it's so endearing. Like the whole thing, it's you're great. like, man, you could just feel the, like him putting his blood, sweat and tears into the TV. It doesn't feel like somebody came in and made a TV show. You know what I'm saying? Right. Which happens right. so Legitimately. often. And he is, it, it was like literally really I'm gonna, I'm, the auteur of that thing. Yeah. I'm going to cast yeah. all my friends. I'm going to write it myself. I'm going to make, you know, like <laughs> it's it was, so good. It's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and Gata was his hype man, like in real right. life. And then no. he was like, I think like, he can do it. And then, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. And dude, yeah. not even just it's, like it's so casting funny. him, 
not even just casting him as like a side character, but like basing entire episodes on this guy <laughs> where he has to act. Oh, yeah. You know, the entire it's it's incredible. Yeah. And I, I just got off set with them. They were they, I got to go on set for a minute and um they just wrapped season two. So like they're just doing all these like tiny oh, things yes. now, but they're like deep in the edit of season two. Yeah. That's exciting. It's exciting. Wow. Uh, Jim, I'm, I'm curious, um, being a, a producer, actor, editor, director, do you feel like that, I mean, the, you know, kind of coming up like that a little bit myself, uh, Christian's the same. Uh, is that something, how do you think that's going to change like the landscape of like, where kind of Hollywood has been when like people can kind of come in and do so much, not like by themselves necessarily, but like with a much smaller team on a level that, you know, Thunder Road beta test or whatever, you know, can kind of like uh, make a dent in kind of like how Hollywood sees like uh, the process going. I don't think it'll change much. It'll change a lot for independent filmmakers to say, oh, somebody else is doing it. I can do that, too. And that will change the landscape. Yeah, Hollywood yeah. will have to adapt to these people who can do everything um, just because the technology is is growing so rapidly that you can get Adobe Creative Cloud and do like we mixed the beta test in Adobe Audition in 5.1 in my garage and we didn't have to spend you know hand over fist kind of money I was able yeah. to learn the program pretty simply because I know Premiere um, but it is a weird thing for me where I'm the guy who has to memorize the lines and do the sex scene but i'm also running the facebook ads and like it's a weird operation that like has never yeah. been done i think um but then i saw an article on reddit that you know tame impala is just one dude and then he right. hires a band to come and play with him when he's doing his shows and he does everything that's so it's like i don't i don't think yeah. that that's changed music that you know the fact that yeah. that yeah. you know some musician can do everything on an album um you know, it's not it's not really going to drastically change things. It's going to change things for those people and um, and the people who are willing to make those risks of, yeah, I'm going to spend 14 months editing and doing the sound design instead of getting somebody and paying somebody who doesn't really care about the project to do it in two months. Um, yeah. yeah, I don't know. The, the thing that I'm most curious about, Jim, is the idea of like distribution, right? Because it feels like even with independent stuff, you can make a movie for half a million dollars or whatever. And then you, you have this product that if you get away with it, it's great. Right. And you get all your friends together who are really talented and it's great, but then you still have to sort of do this traditional sort of like sales agent, like bring it to this. So like, Oh no, we, what, what is, we saw yeah, distribution. I'm getting, that's why I wanted to set you up for this question. I wanted to know, like, what is, like, how did you see that problem at first and go, like, bump that? Like, I don't, I need to kind of. And give us, something. like, the really stupid version. Like, we don't know anything about, yeah. like, I, I don't know anything about this. Walk us through it, like, kind of, sure. kind of, uh, step by step. Sure. So, uh, when we came into the film industry, the two biggest problems that everybody you get at every Q and A or at every panel discussion at a film festival was, uh, how do you get financing and how do you get distribution? Um, now again, because of the digital revolution, these have both changed so drastically that it's taking Hollywood a long time and because of the job security fears, uh, to adapt to it, but independent filmmakers shouldn't. So, 
I'm going to go into detail here, but there's far more detail in these two articles, the Sundance Creative Distribution Fellowship for Thunder Road, which has all of our numbers of what we spent, what the movie cost, and how much we spent in Facebook ads, all that stuff. If you just Google Thunder Road Sundance case study, it'll come up and there's this like beautiful interactive website that the Creative Distribution Fellowship beautiful. built for us. And then there's another, there's another Medium article I wrote called the Short to Feature Lab written curriculum and it's on my medium page and it goes into great detail about how anybody can make their movies and become a distributor themselves basically um so when we came into the film industry that was a necessity you had to go through sales agents you had to give you know 30 percent 40 percent of the film's income gross to these people who are literally sending out vimeo links um uh, to different buyers and basically you're basically t spending a huge amount of money just for their rolodex and and what was happening was it was keeping filmmakers below the poverty line so like you would make mm. a movie for two years and then you'd be lucky to make literally any money on it at all i've good friends who were at South by 2016 with us who still haven't seen a dime from their movie. And it was a $4 million budget. And like, they just, they edited it for free. They did all of this stuff and they sold um, it. And that's what a filmmaker does. They, they sold it, but they, it, and it got distribution. It's out on right. big platforms, but, um, they're, they are filmmakers. They love mm. their movie and they will sacrifice themselves to make sure that their movie yeah. gets seen. It's a beautiful thing that we've filmmakers have had to go through, but it's predatory bullshit. And yeah. we didn't like that. And so my team and I said, all right, the highest offer that we got for Thunder Road was for $115,000. The movie cost 190, 200. Um, that means that we're going to have to go back to our investors and say, Hey, sorry, we lost money on this thing. Or we can look at the Sundance case study from a few years ago and see that Koganada made uh, Columbus for 750 grand mm. and then in self-distribution mm. made 650 back in the first year and a half. And I was like, cool, we don't have to take that big of a risk. Um, this team already did. So we should just try it. And so we bet on ourselves and uh, applied for the Sundance grant. We got a third of what Koganada got for his film and we uh, self-distributed. We got 33 grand. We put it almost entirely into Facebook ads, getting people to see uh, the trailer. And then just like Lil Dicky, uh, the first line after the trailer is where you can pre-order the thing on iTunes or buy it on mm -hmm. all these different platforms. We used an aggregator called Quiver Digital, which any filmmaker can use. You build an account. Uh, you upload your movie in 1080p, uh, Final Cut, and subtitles, whatever you have. And then you pick which platforms you want it to end up on, like iTunes, Google Play, Xbox, Steam, kind of anywhere you want it available uh, globally if you want to. Or you can geolocate where you can yeah. distribute the film. And then we uh, that was our like uh, American release for digital. And then we uh, downloaded a PDF that had contact information from buyers from around the world from a major film festival just by using a Google search engine keyword uh, searching for file type of PDF. And so we just like <laughs> looked up certain <laughs> phrases, got the Rosetta Stone of everybody's contact information, and then I took the bottom of the list and my producers took the top and we just tried to meet each other in the middle and reach out and be like, Hey, would you be, you know, would you like to buy the film in Asia? Would you like to buy the film in, you know, Africa? Would you like to buy the film in Greece? And it was like, really my, my producer, Ben Wiesner and Matt Miller and Natalie Metzger handled all of that stuff and did a fantastic job. And it's just following up. It's just like doing what a sales agent would do, except you get to keep all the money. <laughs> 
Yeah. Interesting. Well, so, so a little behind the curtain, Christian also shot a feature <laughs> end of 2019 and is in the midst of, of selling it. So this is all. Oh, uh, congrats. Thanks, man. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Um, what are the best, uh, what are the best offers you've gotten so far? I can't talk openly, obviously, but, um, yeah, it's, that, that's why I ask is cause it, it feels like very counterintuitive <laughs> yeah, good. to, not good. it feels like very counterintuitive <laughs> to like the whole spirit of how we made it to begin with. You know what I mean? Like you are a hundred percent right. We're going to have to edit this podcast, Jared, but, um, yeah, it's a lot of Rolodex. It's a lot of like, you pay, like, I'm going to take this much out of your movie to, to potentially get you a sale. It's not just Rolodex. It's also inadequacy traps. What in order to protect their job security, their job is to make people who think that they don't know what they're talking about really feel like they don't know what they're talking about to excuse giving them giving them Mm. 30% of your income. It's the equivalent of you being an incredible architect, you building this giant apartment complex, and then you say, oh, but I don't know how to sell and rent apartments. What am I doing? I don't know how to do this, but I'm an incredible architect. And then somebody coming along and saying, I'm going to pay you half of the budget of what it costs to build this thing. And then you never see another dime because, and, and they try and make you feel bad that you don't know what you're doing. So right when the thing is ready for sale or rent, um, they come in and swoop in and get you to sign a contract that removes you from all of your hard work for the last two years. It's ridiculous. And it's an educational issue. Like if you read these two articles that Sundance did and the one that I did, it should be a preservation against that kind of bullshit. And, um, yeah, I think that's the thing of like people, it's so predatory because these buyers come in when a filmmaker is exhausted and they say, I just want somebody else yeah, to do this thing. Yeah, Please yeah. take it off my hands and give me money. But literally, you're going to have to spend the next couple of months doing deliverables for this movie anyway to a buyer. You should also be doing sales on it. What is the um, what is the sort of biggest difference that you felt other than just the time it takes to do things yourself, you know? Um, from the sort of like release and people sort of seeing your, your movie. Like, I, I guess the, the biggest question that I feel like people might have is like, okay, I don't have a big following. My actors are not popular. Like in order to like, is it just selling Facebook ads? Is it doesn't just matter. being smart? Yeah. Go, go. Doesn't matter. Go to, um, if you go to the Apple trailers store, or sorry, to the Apple trailers, you can see any new movie that comes out. A lot of them are horror, but they don't have big actors in them. They look cool. Some of them don't, especially now. Um, <laughs> things are getting to the front page where it's like, how the hell is this on here? But it's because of COVID. <laughs> There's like a lack of content yeah, that's yeah. coming out. But those get onto those platforms because of uh, aggregators like Quiver Digital, where you can end mm. up on the iTunes store. They put the trailer up and it gets some notoriety. And audiences don't give a shit if it doesn't say, you know, The Orchard on it beforehand. That's not why people go to see the movie. They want to see the content of the thing. And that's what's so great about the democratization of this art form is that you can literally pretend to be a distributor and win that audience. You should never be made to feel inadequate. Um, These people are, are not just... Um, the people who are the powers that be, they are your competition. So you have to think about it like that. You are not beholden to them. Um, if you can win their audience because you can do something that's cooler, that's that's the nature of making movies these days. Where, why do you think? Uh, well, have you have you been have you been able to sort of get this down to a? I guess what I'm what I want to know is like, how are you getting financing based on these sort of like? Um, 
self-distributing models? Like, is it, is it safe enough that you've been able to get money, you know, uh, for new movies coming out? Is it still a struggle to actually get the thing paid for? Of course, it's always hell to get a movie financed, but we did something very unique um, this last time for the beta test our film, we ran a WeFunder campaign, which is a crowd equity platform where you're wow. selling shares of your company uh, that owns the screenplay. So we basically set up an LLC, built a page like it was a Kickstarter. Um, at that point, I did have a big audience when I was doing the Thunder Road short. And then when I was doing the Kickstarter for the Thunder Road feature, I didn't have a very big audience. Um, but there was enough people who I knew in my network that were sharing things that then got people to come in and, yeah. and buy shares of the Thunder Road feature, which was helpful for gap financing. But with the WeFunder platform, we just created this like Kickstarter style page. We had to do a lot of legal stuff. Matt Miller helped to do all of these like contracts that would allow us to sell shares. And it took about a month of prep just to work with the platform. But then it was live. And then we had access to an entirely new investor pool of people yeah. from Silicon Valley who wanted to invest in a film who may not have seen my films but then saw the page watched my movies and then were like oh hell yeah we're gonna invest in this thing um you know a lot of people think that film financing independently comes from going to film festivals and schmoozing and you know staying up late with people who call themselves film financers and i'd done that for about six years going to film festivals and talking to people that called themselves film financers and when the time come to came Mm. to press two buttons with their thumbs to invest in our movie (laughs) none of them did and instead seriously Think about that. Yeah. Years of talking to these people and then sending emails and be like, hey, we have this. Here's the opportunity. It's a perfect opportunity. It's a great movie. Um, none of them did. And that's that's a good sign as to where the money actually comes from. And instead, it came from a lovely Broadway actor in New York, an incredible lawyer in London who started a, a production company and wanted to help out. Um came from like, I mean, a thousand people in the United States who had seen our stuff for years and came out of the woodwork and said, yeah, we want to bet on this one. And because of the sales that we've had over the last month, we're not only able to give them their money back with ROI, we're able to get money ourselves. And that's in the first two months of having the film available to watch, which is crazy. Jared, does this make you think twice about your movie now? (laughs) Just like the approach to it? Um, I don't know. I don't know. Jared's, Jared's, we're, we're, we're gearing up to, um, to make something this fall that Jared's first feature, um, this fall. Oh, cool. Congrats. Um, thanks, man. So this is coming like a really good, it's time. all very pertinent. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very, 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 uh, good timing. Um, everything you're saying is scaring me though, Jim. Just so you, just so you know where. Yeah. Maybe that's good. It's scary because someone's telling you that you're going to have to do all the work. And I think that's, that's the biggest hurdle not, that you have to come over. But I, I'm just like you, like I'm obsessed with it. I would do all the work if I knew how. I think that's the thing. It's like um, seeing you sort of um, do it. Yeah, there is no YouTube tutorial for this. Right. You know, like there, there is, there is nothing where you can educate yourself on this thing because if you find out about it, the infrastructure crumbles, and so people right. don't want yeah. you to know this shit. Um, <laughs> And so, and that's it. It's job security. And so, like, it's it, it 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 was something where had we not read that Sundance case study for Columbus, we never would have. Or the first girl I loved, another Sundance film that got the got the grant, um, we never would have had the balls to say, okay, yeah, you can you can do this. And I don't think we would have done it independently. We would have had to, if we didn't get the grant, we probably would have taken a shitty deal. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Is there um. 
just kind of stepping back a little bit, but is there a reason um, you started doing, you know, acting and directing your own movies? And is there something that you've uh, learned through the process and doing that a couple of times? I didn't really know anybody. There was one really good actor who I knew that I thought could do the Thunder Road short. And then when I just started doing it a lot, I was like, no, I think I can do it. My cinematographer and my producer were like, yeah, I think, I think you should be the one to do it because it's ridiculous. Um, and so I did that out of necessity kind of. And then I realized that there's a relationship between an audience and a filmmaker when they are writer, actor, director, that hmm. is so strong and stronger than a director audience relationship where yeah. when I am taking my pants off at a parking lot and screaming my lungs out, the audience <laughs> says, all of this was planned. He wrote this months in advance and rehearsed this in a golf course at night uh, in order to make us laugh. The humiliation <laughs> pornography is so much more endearing. Mm. Um, and I love that relationship. So Thunder Road taught me that, that when people were loving the movie, they weren't necessarily loving the directing. They were loving me. And that was something yeah, that yeah. was a really wonderful bond between a filmmaker and an audience that I had I had not predicted. And, you know, I, I, it makes sense now. All my favorite filmmakers are, you know, Jackie Chan and Charlie Chaplin mm. and all these people that put themselves mm. through hell for That's jokes. Cool. Yeah. And uh, Bill Hader as well. Um, you know, Steve Coogan. I think really like all of that stuff combined to make me have to act in this stuff. I'll just say it's it's egotistical. That's what it is. That's what got me myself. <laughs> Now we're at the heart of it. Um, no, Jim, that, uh, that parking lot scene is, it's the scene. I mean, there's, there's a lot, of course, yeah. that I love about Thunder Road, but that scene is, um, yeah, you just keep, uh, upping the ante over and over again in that scene. <laughs> yeah, it's fucking, it is classic. so brutal. I watched the trailer, the Aphex Twin trailer. Um, Warp Records put it up on their Vimeo. That's the only place that it's legally able to screen now. And it is unbelievably brutal. It is. I There are times when I was watching it, like a year after it came out, we'd go to England or the or um, France and watch it in a theater. And th I, that scene in particular, I'm like, oh, I made it too tragic. It's so brutal. It's so awful to watch. He says, like, I never asked my mom about her first boyfriend dying in Vietnam. And I never made the time. It's like this awful brutality and um and then you see my ass and it's like oh no this is perfect this is like <laughs> no the, the balance is everything man it's yeah there's so many moments of like uh of yeah like really kind of um deep poignant uh just emotional bottoming out and then, and then you like reach for a glass of water or whatever. <laughs> oh my God. That's one of my favorites. It's so bad. I've done that in every film now since. And I, I didn't realize that it's a, it's a punchline that I, I steal a lot from, I guess it's, it's Alan Partridge. It must be Steve Coogan that I'm stealing it from, but to interrupt something very serious with, with the oh, waitress it's... coming and dropping something. Oh, thank you so much. And it's like two separate worlds that then collide. It's so funny. My favorite in, in Thunder Road, I do that when my sister is, I'm, I'm talking about my ex wife and i say i would never use the b word because her, her kids are in the next room and i go i would never say yeah. that but she might be the biggest of them all oh thank you so much and it's like just a funny way to put this together it's great uh, that's Where, what are you, you what are and some then of I'm your crying, favorite and it's like yeah, yeah. oh it's it's fantastic it's Sorry, fantastic Derek, no no you go, ahead, you go ahead i was just gonna say like where do you find like sorry you're <laughs> 
you know, we're all sponges from just like things that we watch and then we try to make those things. Obviously, like what are some of those things, those pillars in, in uh, your like filmmaking repertoire that you pull on for like things that just in the writing process make you think about things or what are some of those those movies for you? Um, I mean, Children of Men. Oh, yeah. I, I'm just going to say Children of Men three times in a row. Children of Men, Children of Men, Children of Men. Um, but then Krisha, really. Krisha was the first mm. time I'd seen someone my age um, make something that was in the style that I wanted to make, where it was very funny to watch the brothers wrestle. And then it goes into this other, you know, montage sequence. That's a lot of fun. And it's all shot in a kitchen in a backyard. Hmm. Um, and then it's heartbreaking and poignant yeah. about alcoholism and drug abuse um, in families in America. It was like, it's everything that if you haven't seen Cretia, anybody who's listening, go see Cretia immediately. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Um, uh, but then I don't know, like I've been watching a lot of stuff lately, where so much of my movies now between Wolf of Snow Hollow and the beta test are a mile a minute. And it's like, I've just been making movies for pe Redditors, people like me with a very short attention span. And instead I'm like, oh no, you can make a movie like Corpus Christi where it can still mm. be just as enticing and interesting, but, um, but I don't know, more cinematic. Um, mm. You know, I've been doing the uncut gems thing for the last two movies, and now uh, I want to. So, you know, yeah, I mean, seeing the Ronnie Ronnie Lilly episode of Barry. I don't know if you guys have seen that one. The, it's in the second season of Barry, the Bill Hader show. That one was uh, profound. And then in talking to to Uncle Bill about that, he's like, "Oh, you know, Alfonso and I are buddies now. Uh, Alfonso Caron and he are buddies now because of like that style. He's like, oh, I'm just stealing your work and like wow. your style, and I want to do it for comedy reasons on on HBO." Um, that was a big one, a big moment for me of you can do the international cinema, uh, cinematography while also doing ridiculous humor. Um, yeah. and it, it makes it better. It doesn't make it worse. Um, and I, I, it makes it more engaging for television audiences and he won all the trophies for it. And I think that that makes sense. So I don't know. I, I, I think, um, I think the things that I get pulled, you know, I'm a huge fan of Hitchcock. I think he had a great wielding of comedy and, and, uh, and terror. And, um, I don't know. I get from a thousand different places. Yeah, I do. I you feel like Corpus you're always kind of holding. Christie. Yeah. I mean, po Polish, Polish cinema is like kind of happening right now. isn't it <laughs> between like, oh, yeah. uh, Powell and, and those Koreans, man. And those Koreans. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> um, Jim, one of my favorite things of yours, I think maybe the first thing before I saw any of your actual films, maybe someone showed it to me, but your like little video diary of going to Sundance. Do you know what I'm really? talking about? Yeah, that was such a, I'm that glad to hear so that. That funny. was such a weird thing. Okay. Because oh, it wait. spirals oh, out of like Sundance control series. at the end, like where you're like a complete oh, asshole. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that is so it's called it's a web series called sundance 2016 all one word and then we did a second season called sundance 2017 i haven't seen and that it's with one my buddies pj think. and dustin oh the second season's insane it's really good <laughs> okay well um, i saw the one where you won it's really good was it it was sundance right and then i become 
And then it's me smoking cocaine yeah, 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 out of yeah. Sundance merch and then like bullying my parents. And it's and it's fucking insane. So so we did that because we were like, all right, Sundance is asking us to do all of these like personal interviews about the seriousness of art. And I was like, OK, there's going to be a lot of pomp and circumstance with this thing. And I was like, all right, well, let's just let's do something absolutely debasing. Let's make it seem like the wrong people got into Sundance. And then <laughs> the whole point of the season was supposed to be that oh, we lose and then I lose my mind and I become this drug addict. We had the whole thing kind of like built out except. Um, and we were releasing it. Yeah, except we won <laughs> the grand jury prize. And then we were like, this is even better. This is good. What was funny was we won the grand jury prize and I came back from the podium and my buddy Dustin, who's acting in the show goes, this is going to be so great for the show. <laughs> and it was like, we, we did not give a shit about anything else. It was like, this is going to be hilarious. And if you watch Sundance 2016, it acts as this unprecedented access to this film festival so many people come up to me and they're like oh yeah they have the awards ceremony in the bowling alley oh i learned that from your stupid web show um <laughs> but it was really it was really valuable because it felt like we were able to do it wrong so that we could all learn how to be humble and to not be awful in the second season we go into that where like i i'm reformed i'm not a drug addict anymore i've gone through rehab and then i'm trying to tell dustin who has a film in the program not to make the same mistakes that i did and it's a really beautiful kind of sad thing um but no we did that as this kind of goofy bullshit and i'm so glad that we did it's one of my favorite things that we did it, it, it's it's ridiculous yeah you should see it. it's on vimeo this season of Good is sponsored by Musicbed. We had the chance to sit down with their CEO, Daniel McCarthy, to talk about why Musicbed exists and how they're helping creatives further their craft. We felt like there was all these indie filmmakers and a ton of indie musicians and they needed each other. Um, like we all know, like the best films are a marriage between the moving picture and music. I view it as an ongoing ecosystem that continues to you know, increase the value of art that continues to allow artists to support other artists. Thanks again to Musicbed for sponsoring this season of Good. As a good listener, you can get one month subscription free if you go to musicbed.com good. This season of Good is also sponsored by Film Supply. Here's their CEO, Daniel McCarthy, again on what makes Film Supply the best stock footage resource for films. The footage being licensed is the footage coming out of passion projects from filmmakers, and, and it's because it is the most authentic, cinematic, and it's, the, it's all the stuff that all the filmmakers have put all their blood, sweat, and tears into, and it shows. Like, you look at a clip, and you're like, oh my gosh, that's emotive. I want to use that. The guys that just go out there and shoot a day for stock, like... That's not who we are. I mean, that's not what we're about. Like, we're about helping filmmakers fund passion projects and seeing the footage from these passion projects actually get used in commercial ways. Thanks again to Film Supply for sponsoring this season of Good. With Film Supply, you can license stock footage from world-class filmmakers like El Ginter, Diego Contreras, Masio Frost, and more. Plus, if you're short on time, they have free footage research available to help you find exactly what you need. Learn more at filmsupply.com. Okay, I'm curious, and I'm sure a lot of people are as well. This is like the question, you know, like, um, and I know you've got your short to feature lab where you focus on this, I'm sure, but, um, doing Thunder Road, the short, and then being like, okay, it, I think I'm ready to, to turn, maybe not even turn a short into a feature, but I'm ready to, to make my first feature. What was that kind of process like internally for, for you? Oh, it's terrifying. So, so, I guess like real behind the scenes, I made a film that was 73 minutes 
uh, in New Orleans in 2009 with a couple of my buddies that we moved down from college and we had a red camera and it was like, let's go shoot uh, this feature film. And I'd written it. It was about post-Katrina New Orleans and it was terrible. My my fiance and everybody, my mom is like, it's great. It's such a lovely little film. And I hated it. And it, it took me, got in the one film festival and it was such a failure. It took me a year and a half to edit. And I saw it as this big personal failure of, mm. you know, assuming the audience is going to be interested in the characters and then sitting in a movie theater watching it with people was so cringy because like nobody gives a shit about this stuff. Mm. And it became me saying, I'm never going to make something boring ever again. Yeah. And then I spent five or six years producing for other people because I was too timid to do anything on my wow. own. I was a failed filmmaker. And then uh, I saw Trey make Krisha. I, I had seen Children of Men a thousand times. And I was like, oh, there's something here. There's some sort of renaissance that could happen where you know we could take these ideas and shoot them in a the backyard. And then I worked for Dickey. And then uh, I was working at College Humor. And I was making short films three times a week as a producer. And I was like, all right, well, you know, I'll just do one for myself. And I did the Thunder Road short. Um, but then after it won Sundance, I wasn't ready to do a feature. And Hollywood told me so. <laughs> it was like <laughs> I had done this great 13 minute short and I met everybody at every production house and none of it turned into anything. And that was yeah. fine. Yeah. But I'm the, the person who I really met that changed my life was Natalie Metzger, my producer. And we made nine more single take short films together. And one of them uh, is a series called Minutes that we made for a company called Fullscreen. And I was able to get the rights back after Fullscreen went under as a production company or as a distributor and re-edited it into a feature and it worked as a feature. And that got me the confidence to be like, okay, cool. We can hold an audience's attention over 90 minutes. Mm. And at that time, I was already writing the, the feature for Thunder Road and giving the script to Natalie. She was like, absolutely. She started doing the line budget, line item budget um, immediately. And we got scrapped together some money from friends and people and um and were able to shoot that in austin in 14 days and i had just i had recorded it as a podcast like this out loud so i'd written the script and then played every part just how i'm doing it now in a closet and then edited some music and sound design together and it worked as a 90 minute movie and it was really funny and really brutal and so after rehearsing it a thousand times i knew that it would work um, and that got me the confidence to be like, okay, I just have to enact what the podcast is mm. and, uh, and, and that'll, that'll be fine. But it's a really difficult hurdle and a lot of people jump into it before they're ready. And I was lucky enough to get two shots at a first feature yeah. having failed the first time. And many people don't get that. Many people don't have that privilege. Um, but the thing that got me, um, very confident, I, it wasn't even winning Sundance, but it was making something that is 13 minutes that was really perfect that I got to put all of my thoughts and energy yeah. into. And I suggest every filmmaker do that. Just instead of instead of jumping into a feature that's going to cost you 200 grand, yeah. take a scene from it that's the most powerful and potent, the most interesting moments in a character's life and shoot that in a weekend with your friends. Um, do you feel like on some level, you know, not to say it was a failure, I, I, I don't know, but to, to go through that process of feeling like a failure, do you think <clears throat> kind of like the amount of preparation that you felt like you needed to do to make Thunder Road, do you think you would have done that without feeling like you had failed prior? I think, no, I think failure is something that is really 
toxic, especially in our world of independent film. Everybody feels like a failure. And so my job yeah. on Twitter is to tell everybody that they're not, because if I hadn't listened to Trey or any of these other small people around me that were giving me thumbs up, I never would have gotten off the couch. Yeah. I would have taken another job and done something else. It is a really shit kicking job to be uh, an independent filmmaker and you feel awful all of the time before you <laughs> before you, something breaks yeah and it's true and it's a really toxic place to live inside of your mind um mm. and so i've made that my mission to make sure that nobody is made to feel inadequate or feels inadequate and that there is no magic to this there's just yeah. doing it and um so I don't know. I think that that failure can often be um, addictive and, and intoxicating mm, and make you feel like yeah. you can't do anything. Um, and it's a it's a comfortable place to be instead of getting up and doing something. Um, and so I don't I don't think that's helpful. I think that the thing that got me uh, off the couch to do it was seeing Trey do it and seeing Dick yeah, do it, yeah. and then and then saying and then seeing all these people at College Humor who were making stuff that was getting celebrated that wasn't funny. And I was like, this is infuriating. I'm going to do something that's funny. That's really yeah. important. And, and like, there was this, there was a guy there who worked there who I just loathed intrinsically. And I think that created this fire inside of me to be like, I'm going to make something permanent. I'm going to make something yeah. everlasting that will be 13 minutes as a huge fuck you. I think I was primed, <laughs> yeah. having just gone through a divorce as well, to be like, I need to prove myself immediately. And like, mm, that was something yeah, yeah. Uh, that got that got me to do it. Um, so I was very lucky that when I was 29, I was in this weird headspace that I have to do it and it has to be incredible. Um, and I've been there since a couple of times, yeah. but yeah, uh, it's yeah that that's what it took me to to get up and do something. It's interesting he hearing your story, Jim, because I feel like, um, you know, talking about seeing other people do it is kind of what's really kind of driven you. And I think I feel pretty pretty similar. You know, like uh, even watching Christian make his movie. Um, I have some friends who did like the Mark Duplass. Uh, I forget what the program yeah. is called now, but um, the scene sparked. It's great. It's yeah. great. I have friends, um, the, the, these two female filmmakers who made Drought, uh, and they're fucking hilarious. Oh, yeah. And their movie just Hannah came and out Megan on are like really good friends. Are you kidding me? I love those girls no. so much. I got to hang out with them in Wilmington. <laughs> um, I was shooting a movie yeah. out there in 2019 and they came and hung out and I got to show them stuff from Werewolf and a little bit of beta and how I was recording the podcast. And Amazing. they are the funniest people ever i i They're think that, i think that they yeah. are going to be like the next lena dunham i think they are so funny <laughs> so i think also at that dinner was my friend parish who um is my co-writer so we we write everything together what's parish's last name? Stike leather yeah i know parish he's he's reached out a couple of times he has some cool shorts yeah he's he's super talented so we write everything together um but oh, he wow. was he, he lives in wilmington too and was uh like yeah, like on set doing everything uh, during during filming drought. So small world, but just watching people make stuff, you know, it's like um, I feel like I've got a pretty good engine, but I think the the looking at making a feature and it feeling just so big, seeing people that you know do it, it just kind of begins to like alleviate like the mirage of like um, I don't know, it makes it feel more more accessible or doable or something. 
I think I think also we're talking about the value of film school. You don't need to go to film school. You need to have a community. And that's why we do the short to feature lab. That's why we try to build as much community as we can at our production company, um, because it's one thing to watch YouTube tutorials when you're alone, uh, you know, at four in the morning trying to study something. But the best way to learn is looking over someone's shoulder at them press the keys in Premiere and have a shortcut. And you're like, oh, I didn't know you could do that. As <laughs> and still, as a yeah. <laughs> as a professional filmmaker, watching somebody else use the keys and do something mm. is like, oh, I can do that. Yeah. Okay, cool. That's easier. Like it's it's such a valuable thing, and it's not just about you know software to to see somebody do a trick with an eye light to get the audience closer to the characters there's a thousand little things that being on set yes. does help yeah. um to make you a better filmmaker and that's why i feel so bad about covid because there's this entire generation of kids who do not and will not have that education for mm. another many months and um and it's it, we're going to see this cliff i think of content and that's what i'm trying to do is trying to, to share the educational um drop off that we've had and and help people because I want to see better movies. I yeah. want to see movies that are great. And 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 the digital revolution has been very helpful, but um, they're going to need a lot more help, mm. I think. How how have you seen like the uh, the industry? Like, uh, I can I mean from my perspective, I think it's changed. But like, just the volume of people making things dramatically increase. I feel like kind of at the 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 years you were talking about, like graduating high school, going to college, and all that, just like the amount of people making things has increased so dramatically that it feels like making uh, good things too. making like yeah, quality that it feels, it feels, it feels, um, I don't know. Like, yeah, you're just in a massive sea of other people trying to do the exact same thing. You know, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think that like, you know, I remember there was in, in high school, there was a, a film teacher of mine where I was like trying to do this short film. And I was like, oh, but there's a big movie coming out with this. And she said, um, uh, yeah, but they're not going to do it like you will. Mm -hmm. And I thought that that was a big moment for yeah. me of like, you could be making the same movie, but you know, you have the special sauce that's going to make it funny or you have the special sauce that's yeah, going to yeah. engage an audience. And I think that's a good challenge. Um you know, I, I was very depressed for a long time. I wrote an article called The Digital Recession based mm. on that, where there was like, you know, in 2008, um, you know, I think it was like seven days of footage was uploaded to YouTube every minute. I'm sure it's grown exponentially since, especially throw COVID. Up. I was like, how do you... <laughs> How do you compete with that? Yeah. And that's a really simple way so to get defeated. And I think that was my brain searching for that mm. as an excuse as to why I wasn't successful yeah, rather yeah, yeah, than yeah. seeing it as this thing of, oh, everybody gets to make stuff and that's me. I'm everybody. Mm. Um, and I think I think it's a wonderful thing mm. for cinema, obviously, that there's more stories that are more accessible um, and it, it's easier for anybody from anywhere in the world to be able to create a film studio. And I'm seeing Hollywood shift in that direction. To answer your question, um, you know, I had six agents uh, before COVID at a big eight talent agency, and four of them, more than half of them, left to start their own production companies wow. because everybody realizes that the future of film is creating stuff that then you own. Um, wow! Yeah, and that's just how the world is changing. Everybody's making stuff, and you know, y'all have been making movies for 15 years. So you, yeah. you didn't, you're not just hearing the starting gun. Uh, right, so you already right. have a leg up. I think, I think really the world is going to change towards production and, 
you know, the cat's out of the bag that you can create a studio from your apartment if you wanted to. Jim, what is the difference? And maybe you know more than I do, but I hear, you know, the way that like Soderbergh, for example, makes movies um, try as far as like the financing of them. I want to know sort of like, why doesn't he self-distribute as well? Like, why doesn't someone like that? Like, is it going to take someone massive, like an A-tier director to sort of self-distribute something to change the game? Or is it sort of a rising tide? You know what I mean? I mean, really, so I guess that's all in contract form. Soderbergh doesn't need to. He has, you know, he's already getting you know, seven digit offers for any movie that he comes up with. And even sure. one of his smaller movies like Bubble costs $2 million to make. So like he kind of has to go through the system, even if he's shooting it on an iPhone. Um, I don't know what Uncle Steve is up to. I think I think that dude could do <laughs> absolutely everything when it comes to making movies. Um, and I'm sure he could do it. And I think I think that is going to change. I think we're going to see people like when you look at someone like Joe Penna, Mystery Guitar Man, who was a big YouTuber and then was like, no, I'm going to make a bunch of short films and then made a YouTube series of shorts and then had a feature ready and went to Mads Mikkelsen and was like, hey, I want to make this Arctic movie. And he said yes. And it's screening in Cannes. And this is one of our <laughs> neighbors on YouTube, basically. Like, I think I think the world is going to change to be more like Joe Penna um, than you know, having to go through the systems. And when you say Uncle Steve, you got to remember, we are Uncle Steve. Like we, we're we doing the same thing that he is doing. Yeah. And when he was doing Sex, Lives, and Videotape, he had less ability to be to find an yeah. audience than we did. Um, this may be too broad, Jim, but I, I'm sure you've got uh, thoughts on, on this. Uh, what are, speaking to like, yeah, like a, a younger generation of filmmakers, what are kind of obstacles that filmmakers put in front of themselves that might not actually exist? I mean, inadequacy traps is the first one, like yeah. making yourself feel inadequate or that you don't know what you're doing. How do you see that a simple pan panning YouTube out? Tutorial can help. Um, I think, I hope all of that collapses, but it's really intriguing and enticing to meet someone in Hollywood who says, Oh, I'm excited. This is great. I read your script. It's fantastic. Mm. Oh, I love it. We're going to like package this thing and go for it. And so it makes you feel a whole lot less alone. And then you're fucked in the contract. And then yeah. you're working on this thing for four years and you're not actually running the Kickstarter campaign, uh, to get the money to go and do it yourself with your friends. Um, I, I hope that people like Joe Penna or even me, like the way that we make movies or Mario Walker or Danny Madden or any of these, you know, buddies of mine. Um, I hope that their stories get out of like you can get into top tier film festivals running a Kickstarter campaign and self-distribute yeah. and have a retirement plan while still owning your mm -hmm. movie um, or by owning your movie. Um yeah, I don't know. I I I I think that the next generation is going to be more. I mean, they're all addicted to TikTok. Like they're they're already self <laughs> generators. I think um, yeah. if they can call the shots, they will. Yeah, yeah. That's the thing, Jared, that scares me the most. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> well, because the the technology change is exponential. You know what I mean? Like yeah. ten years ago, it was a five D, right? And that was kind of like a like explosion. But now it's like there's a hundred different types of drones I could buy at one website. You know what I mean? Like there's a hundred different types of like, but that doesn't that really change like what we all want to do. 
No. I guess what I'm nervous about is the access will change the the quality and the amount, right? Like the access. Yeah, to, but I think we've already been it'll through change like the, the amount, most but it seismic change. change. The you don't think so? Yeah, and it's not going to change. No, and pe- what people want to see is parasite. They don't want to see d- cool drone footage. Like so, so that was the big problem. The huge cliff that happened uh, when I was graduating college, where I had I had grown up watching movies and studying Hitchcock and shit. And then I'm glad that I studied on a Bolex and kind of learned how difficult it was. Even though I hate film with a passion and think that digital is better objectively, um, I think really that taught me story and how to engage an audience. And then obviously being a Redditor for 15 years, that's also helped to understand how people engage with media and what they actually find funny and what they actually find heartbreaking. Um, but but really, like there was a huge cliff once the 7D came out where it was just super saturated, shallow depth of field stuff that was looking cool on Vimeo in a music video, but you can't hold an audience's attention for 90 minutes if you tried. Like, but I all think, those, all I those think guys who did still, that were the guys who are doing it. You know what I'm saying? Like the guys who have figured out how to use those small cameras eventually are doing movies now, right? Like yourself. I don't know. I mean, the vast majority of the people that I saw that were succeeding in that space in 2007 to 2014 are not making feature films. You don't think so? And they're not making television. I mean, you're probably right. I know so. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm I'm friends with them on Facebook. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that is the little the the Vimeo bubble is interesting because that was definitely a, a thing, and it feels like uh, transitioning out transitioning out of that. I don't know if everybody's made that jump. Think about how yeah. difficult it would be to go from short films on Vimeo to now being a TikToker, where like that's the new social cool video platform, and the videos are a minute long, and it's like that jump to making a ninety minute thing and making it good. Cinema is its own art form and there are really cool ways to engage an audience over 90 minutes yeah and it's an it's an educational gap where it's like you can you can know how to do dance videos you can know how to make something cool um with sleight of hand in tiktok but it's a completely different language that you're speaking yeah, over 90 yeah, minutes yeah. so like it's true i am not i am i am not concerned about um, you know, the, the, a wave of kids making 90 minute movies, I think they'll still try. Our job is to, to teach them the old ways of how to make, yeah, <laughs> like yeah. I'm speaking, like I'm bringing out the old texts of, you know, from the Mayans <laughs> temples or whatever. But it's like, that's like, I, I think really that's it. Like, I, I think it's important to educate kids and say, Hey, you can have a career in film if you want it. Yeah. This is how you do it. Trust me. This is, this, there's, just, there's better ways to do it. I don't know. Yeah. One thing I do want to uh, talk about f- a little bit further before we get to our lightning round uh, stuff, Jared, um, your podcast thing that you did, do you do for your movies? It, I, I find that fascinating, but I, the, the bigger question I have is like, how do you prep a movie, especially one that you get into, mm-hmm. especially the independent movie where you know, on set, I'm sure you know how this feels where it's like, you're the only person who knows where the ship is going, you know, like how do you prep as a director actor, um, and some of those techniques like the podcast, um, and selfishly, are you using any programs or any kind of like, are you using VR, using a way to write, are you using some kind of collaboration thing in order to, to prep your movies better? I, I had a weird uh, shift in thinking after going to film school and learning all the ways to do it of, you know, screenplay format was hit over our heads a thousand times. And although it works for many people, it never worked for me. 
Um, I I think most people, their screenwriters, will go and sit down with headphones and um, start writing a script and then hear the voices in their head and then write down the voices into dialogue. And then the first time that anyone reads it out loud and they realize that it doesn't work or it sucks or it doesn't sound good coming out of human vocal cords is when they have a table read and they're like, oh my God, I'm a terrible screenwriter. This is, this is awful. Whereas recording it as a podcast, it's constantly changing the script for me of like, you find uh, simple ways of speaking um, that make it more concise. There's a better word economy mm. or you can, you can make punchlines work that might not have worked in text form. Um, and so I love doing screenplays. There is no magic sauce. I use Premiere uh, to edit the sound just as I would with a short film or a feature. And then I'll record stuff in the voice memos app of my iPhone or in the notes app of my iPhone. It's a lot of notes in the notes app. Um, and then I'll just transcribe those into screenplay form. I was like, oh, this is a cool idea. This is a funny story. I heard this could go into the script here. Wow. Um, and then that is very contributive. Like to, to make the podcast, I send it out to the full cast and crew, but I send it to Natalie first, my producer, and she gets the tone of it and is like, okay, cool. This, this is great. Does it have to actually be a police station? And so being very close to her throughout the prep means that we get to save a huge amount of money instead of yeah, renting yeah, a $15,000 yeah. a day police station. It's like, no. I just need a wall with a blue line on it and some cop knickknacks and then we'll just shoot it in close up and put the sound design of a police station in. And then she's like, great. That means that we get to shoot on the camera and lenses that we wanted to hmm. for this thing. Yeah. Um, so having having a direct relationship with your producers and having many production meetings beforehand, it's nothing special. You take a table out and a yeah. couple of fold out chairs and then sit down with laptops and go over everything. I think the the you're, you're exactly right. Like uh, it is one of those those uh, inevitable things of <clears throat> you get to, I mean, sometimes even just on the day, especially in commercials and stuff, there's just, it's moving so fast that like, if there's any dialogue, it's like, this is going to be, <laughs> but yeah, um, it's true. But yeah, I think the, what about your actual, are, cause you're you are actually writing this, like uh, punching the keys, right? Like you're, there's nobody sort of writing with you. Um, for the new stuff, you I say that you kind of throw for, for the new movies for the beta test. I co-wrote okay. it and co-directed it with my buddy PJ, and we had already been doing that for a TV show that we were writing, where we use writer duet and we have two laptops that aren't facing each other, and we'll write something. And then if that's I write funny. something that I think is clever and he laughs, then I'm like, cool, <laughs> that's staying in. That's, Dude, that's and amazing. and vice versa, you know. Yeah, as far as the um, as far as just the theory on how you know you've made enough m films, short films. Um, to have sort of like a Jim Cummings X factor to like just the things you make, right? Um, what are some of those through lines that you've seen um, yourself be interested in in that mm -hmm. writing process? Like the non-traditional sort of formatting of, you know, character arcs or whatever. Like what are some of the things that you've found in your work? I mean, really all of that, I hate to say from my experience has been just banking on the system being bullshit or that a lot of these older ways to write um, haven't adapted to the times and or to the technology where there are better ways to get an idea into an investor's mind than words on a page. One of my mm, favorite um, 
executive yeah. producers who I met, one of our favorite investors, this guy named Bob um, Compton is a lovely guy. And he said to me once, um, I wonder if you could read the script out loud to me. I have a terrible actor that lives in my head. And I thought that was a really wow. funny thing of like, he, he, he reads the movie and he's just like, this is going to be terrible. But as soon as I read it out loud to him, he was like, oh my God, this is going to be amazing. I can hear wow. the movie now. And that's yeah. why I started doing the podcast versions. Um, and that's something where like many filmmakers have to fight that uphill battle of words on a page and getting an idea across to um, people to be taken seriously, whether it be a production company, investors, uh, studio, whatever it is. And I've just found that the words on a page are kind of the worst thing that I do. Mm. Like I act out all the scenes before writing them down. I act them out a thousand times before I can find the best dialogue. Um, and so the words on the page are the worst is the worst the movie will ever be. And so by <laughs> doing it in audio form, yeah. you know, we're filmmakers. Like the, the, the strengths that we have is in editing and we know how to do all this stuff. We, sh we just, it's just because it's non-standard that we don't do it. But I think now it's becoming the standard. Yes. To, I remember even like entering into like kind of commercial filmmaking and just being so kind of, uh, uh, petrified of like not doing something the right way, being on the phone with a client or a call, zoom call or whatever. And it being like, am I allowed to say this? Am I allowed to not say this? And I think the more I was in it, the more I realized that like, it doesn't really matter. You know, I was afraid of, of like my executive producer being like, you can't say that, you know, or whatever. But like the more I'm in, you know, like whether it's commercial stuff or making my own movies, it's like, yeah, I think this is probably your, your, uh, I mean, if I, I could think of like one thing that embodies Jim Cummings, it's like, um, that none of that mattering. And I think that's really helpful, you know? Yeah. I mean, I was the king of that nervousness and feeling inadequate and feeling like I was going to constantly get into trouble. Like anytime I was <laughs> yeah. on a call, yeah, exactly. you know, you feel like you're on the playground again. And, um, and so I, I, I feel like it, because you're uncomfortable in the space or you're not necessarily the best diplomat, or you don't spend most of your life in an office dealing with, you know, right. corporate hierarchies and, uh, diplomacy. Um, you're just a person who makes dick and fart jokes all day. Like, is that inappropriate <laughs> to be yourself? And I found that like, I mean, our new movie, The Beta Test, is about the agency world collapsing because of technology. And we did a deep dive into corporate doublespeak of like how people speak mm. in these worlds. And uh, we did that as this kind of uh, preservation for us for future meetings of like, okay, cool. You now know that you can't talk to us like this. And like, we're the, we are the wow. people who understand <laughs> yeah. that all of this is bullshit. And it's yeah. been so wonderful to finally have open, serious conversations <laughs> with people that yeah. Yeah. are human um and it's not about the film industry stuff it's great so i don't know there are wonderful workarounds that you can have of like protecting yourself from that like talking to david gordon green um there there's just language that he uses in meetings and it's like oh it's funny and it's making me laugh because it's inappropriate and then that's just confidence that's just him being himself yeah. and that's more yeah. endearing i don't know I've, i found that that tanking that stuff is usually a better way to get into it do you feel like with you know, subsequent movies and experience, uh, the confidence kind of growing to like, um, allow yourself to do what you need to do to, you know, whether it's, you know, how you communicate an idea to a buyer or, or investor or how you talk to the crew. Do you feel like you've been able to like more embody like what you need to do the more experience you've had? Um, the Wolf of Snow Hollow being my first studio movie, that was a lesson in diplomacy of, hmm. Um, working with 55 people on a set over 23 days, making something that's $2.1 million, um, 
which I'm very proud to say we, we've gotten back in the first year of it being out, which is awesome. That's amazing. Um, yeah. But it was incredibly nerve wracking to go from a $200,000 movie to a $2 million yeah. movie yeah. Um, because you kind of, as the writer and director, are at the bottom of the totem pole as to what it needs to go into the thing or how the movie should be. Um, but I was very lucky. I had a team of people that were willing to put up good fights and argued to get the stuff that I wanted to be in the movie to be in the movie. And then there's also a really great benefit in being the writer, director, and star of the movie where um, they have to be nice to me because at the end of the day, the microphone ends up in my face and they want me to say nice things. So yeah. that was very helpful. Uh, Jim, what is your biggest pet peeve on set? I'm interested with this one. Um, dickheads. I think I think there's a weird Just general assholes. general dickheads. Yeah. I think um we always say no dicks on set. Um and then they let me be on set, so I don't know why uh, that rule hasn't <laughs> flopped. But um but yeah no, there's a weird uh, toxic culture of people who are mean to people to try and it's all old Hollywood stuff. But um that's my biggest pet peeve of somebody being rude. And then, and then thinking that that's not going to get out to the rest of the crew, where it's like, yeah, if if yeah. there is someone in in any department who is rude to another member of department, I stop everything to go and be like, you can't, you don't talk to my production designer like that. That's insane. Um, and so that's that that's been that's been a big fight. But you make enough movies, you keep the people who are lovely around, and um, and that's yeah, it. yeah, yeah. Um, what's been your biggest nightmare on set? Um, not getting the shots that we need. Um, so there were times on some movies where we would do shot lists, um, and we would get four of the six shots that we needed just because of the speed of, um, yeah. different departments. And that is always the most frustrating thing. David Fincher said that once he said, um, about seven, he said, you don't know what directing is until you've got five shots left to get, but the sun is going down and you're only going to get two. Um, and I think he was talking about that scene of the head in the box, yeah. uh, which is almost told exclusively in the Brad Pitt close up. Um, and the sun was going <laughs> down and they had to they had to get it. Um, and so that's always the most frustrating thing when you're making a big, big um, crew movie and you can't just pick up the camera and get it like you would on an independent yes. film where you can just yes. be like, I can do it. I'm begging you. Just let me get this one insert because I'm going to need it. So it's not. <laughs> yeah. So we have a cutaway. Give me the um, camera. Yeah, that that kind of stuff is <laughs> is incredibly frustrating. But um, it's it's a slow thing. That's something that I've I really struggle with of um of tempo of having everybody work yeah, at the same yeah. tempo that I'm working at. And my tempo is insanely fast. I feel like I'm in whiplash or something. And I'm screaming at the drummer. <laughs> um, but uh that that's probably the most frustrating and then you learn to to be nice to people and people are literally doing their best yeah. and it, it might not be your best um but um you you try to work you, you we're trying we're all trying to make this thing better and there's no point in shooting holes in the other side of the boat because the boat right. sinks regardless in that case. <laughs> yeah that's a great way to put it um what is one thing you couldn't do your job without and why it can't be a camera could be anything an object or platform um i would say 
Oh, I, I mean, Premiere is incredibly helpful. The, the entire Adobe Creative Cloud is unbelievably helpful and so easy and intuitive. And I, I, I think technologically, I don't think I could do my job with any other software just because I know it. And um, me, the, the guy who's making the movie, knowing how it's going to end up is incredibly helpful in making movies. Um, but I would say uh, trusted companionship behind monitor of like, I have three great producers. And then anytime I've made a feature, I've had another filmmaker kind of there helping out. Danny Madden was our creative director on Thunder Road and the Wolf of Snow Hollow, but he's a director in his own right. And he, he knew what I was trying to do with the movie, he spoke the language of the movie. So if I was memorizing lines or prepping the stunt and somebody came up and said, okay, well, we have these three options for what props need to be in the movie. Danny can go, no, he's not going to want that. He's going to want these ones. And having having someone there who halfway through a long take, when the focus buzzes or it's not as good as the previous take that we did, he can say cut or any of my producers can say cut. It's like, Jim's not going to like that. We got to we got to do it again. Um, yeah. Having yeah. that team save so much time and sanity for me to call Danny in the middle of the night and say, am I losing my mind on this or is, do we need to reshoot this tomorrow? And he'll go, yeah, no, totally. you're right. It'll be better like that. Mm. Yeah, that's great. Um, okay, we'll do two more here. Uh, when is the hardest you've laughed on set? Oh, man. Oh, man. Um uh, I'm thinking of the times that I've corpsed where on the Thunder Road short film, we got through an entire take uh, and we, so I got through all the dancing and everything and then got to the back pew with my daughter and I'm trying to become emotional and the eight-year-old in front of me breaks wind and it, it, I cannot remember... <laughs> laughing that hard and trying not to laugh in a church full of people and it's dead silent and it was the loudest fart i've ever heard from an eight-year-old and then i broke and laughed and then we had to reshoot it and it was like just the perfect joke of like having done 12 minutes of complicated dance routines and then cool let's reset um, that was that was really fantastic um and then there was a line in the beta test that we had to shoot 16 times, 17 times. It was the hardest I've tried to not laugh where my character is incredibly stressed out and he's shouting at his assistant who he thinks has kind of betrayed him in this weird way. And I say, um, I, I start to walk into my office and then I come back out and I go, you don't know the first fucking thing about my personal life. <laughs> and I am going to need new Pepto-Bismol immediately after lunch. And I walk into my office and it was just such a difficult thing to get out because it is such a contradiction of like, you don't know anything about my personal life, but if you don't get me Pepto-Bismol, I'm going to have diarrhea immediately after eating. And it was just such a good joke. And I, I laughed every time and we had to push the camera behind a bunch of stuff and the entire camera crew, because they knew, I knew that if they were there and watching me, that they were going to laugh and know that I was going to laugh. So it was this weird psychosomatic relationship of like, I can't have any anybody in my purview it was um it was really ridiculous <laughs> that's funny uh last one is there anybody um that gave you a shot or a chance that you would like to thank i mean yeah and anybody along the way like i mean orion pictures giving us the green light to do the wolf of snow hollow was really special for my first studio movie and they were taking a risk with this 
filmmaker who was doing weird stuff. They they were really wonderful. <laughs> Dan Kagan, John Hageman, um, uh, you know Jonathan Glickman. That that entire team were really really cool. Um, Molly Mankiewicz. Uh, everybody at that team at MGM was really fantastic and and so supportive and lovely. Um, but anybody, I mean, Steve Coogan reached out uh, after seeing Thunder Road five times. Nicolas Cage reached out. Um, all of these people who have no business um, talking to me called and said, hey, you know, keep keep going. Bill Hader, like so, Bill Hader, for one, mm. Bill Hader is a really fantastic Southern filmmaker who's doing everything that he can to make cool stuff and working very hard. Where's he from? And um, he's from Tulsa. Um He's uh, okay. and and he's trying to do something big, uh, another another big feature. And um, I just think he's so talented and doesn't get the credit for it. And um, yeah, I just I, lo I love him so much. And he was uh, another thing of just he calls and t takes you entirely seriously like you're an equal. And um, hmm. yeah, he mm. him, David yeah, Gordon cool. Green as well. Both 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 Southern dudes who um, who are doing something cool. Jim, thank you, man, for joining us. Seriously, we appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. <laughs> Don't forget, this season of good is sponsored by MusicBed. Go to musicbed.com to check out over 700 indie artists and composers with record label quality music. And remember, as a good listener, you can get one month free off any subscription type. Just head to musicbed.com good and use coupon code good at checkout. This season of good is also sponsored by Film Supply. Licensed stock footage from world-class filmmakers. And do not forget to take advantage of features like shoots and scenes. Craft an entire narrative with extensive collections featuring the same talent and settings. Plus, if you're short on time, they have free footage research available to help you find exactly what you need. Learn more at filmsupply.com.